sometimes I ask myself, what the hell am I doing? You know, studying this very unexciting molecule of CO2, spending all my time thinking about that. <laughs> Kari Helgeson is a 39-year-old scientist working in Iceland. You're unlikely to have heard of him. He's not famous, he hasn't won any Nobel Prizes, but who knows, he might one day, because when it comes to climate change and the problem of all that excess climate-altering CO2 in the atmosphere, he matters. Still, getting into climate science was never really Kari's life ambition. It's also a question of, you know, uh, not what you want to do or what you need to do. In fact, as a teenager, Kari was inspired by the astrophysicist Stephen Hawking. He admired Carl Sagan. And like them, Kari's gaze was firmly turned up to the stars. You know, for me back then, planet Earth was sort of an insignificant speck of dust somewhere, you know, in the corner of the cosmos, right? And I was just interested in everything else. And I couldn't believe that all my friends were, you know, interested in only things that were like earthbound. For me, that's like being not interested in 99.999% of everything else. The climate crisis changed all that. You see, there were things happening in Iceland. The kind of things we used to see only in sci-fi films. Things that Kari believed could potentially really tackle the climate crisis. But it meant forgetting about the stars and focusing on that one tiny molecule, CO2. You know, the one that Kari described as unexciting. You know, if you take it to the quantum level, it's a pretty standard molecule, really. It's pretty well understood. There are, there are not many mysteries to be solved. It's not a boring molecule, though. I mean, it's the most important one in the world, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it's not particularly exciting. But there are plenty of people across the world who are excited about Kari's work. That's because excess CO2 in the atmosphere is causing the world to heat up and our climate to change, threatening to make our one and only home, planet Earth, unlivable. And across the world, many people are putting their faith in technology to save the day. And that very much includes the kind of technology that Kari is working on. I'm Polita Clark, and this is Tectonic from the Financial Times, a podcast series about how technology is changing the world. You don't need me to tell you the clock is ticking on climate change. Scientists say that the next few years are critical if we want to get a grip on global warming. We need to nearly halve global carbon emissions by 2030 and bring them down to virtually zero by 2050. A lot of people say, we can't do that without a lot more new technology. But is that really true? In this series, you'll hear about some terrific innovations, some extraordinary projects and ideas are being put to the test. The question is, will any of them be scaled up in time? Will they ever become commercially viable? Or is emerging climate tech just an expensive distraction that's eating up time we can't afford to waste? Is technology really the solution to the climate change crisis? Now, I've spent a big chunk of my career writing about climate change, business and the environment. A lot of that reporting has focused on the things we need to do to cut down on the billions of tonnes of carbon we're spewing into the atmosphere every year. 
phasing out fossil fuels like coal and oil, investing in clean energy, shifting to electric vehicles, protecting forests. But those are difficult things to do. They mean overturning economies that have been based on fossil fuels for more than a century. So it's no wonder that there's a different, seductively simple solution that's capturing people's imaginations. Carbon capture. Carbon capture. Carbon capture and storage. Uh, We are putting a big bet, as you know, on carbon capture and storage. Direct air capture technology. If the problem is that we've been taking too much carbon out of the ground and releasing it into the air, why not reverse that process? Take carbon out of the air and put it back in the ground. Hello, hello. Hi, I'm Polita. Polita. Great to see you. Thank you. Yeah, sorry I'm a bit late. No Um, problem at all. It's the idea of capturing and burying CO2 in the ground that took me to meet Kari Helgeson, the one-time astrophysicist we heard at the start of this show. I met Kari outside Reykjavik in Iceland. The landscape there is barren and treeless and it looks like a film set from the Hollywood blockbuster The Martian. I'm half expecting to see Matt Damon walk out of here because it really looks like a Martian landscape. Yeah, no, I, I, I sometimes quote that movie when people ask me, you know, how to solve the climate change and just say, we have to science the shit out of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out Iceland is the perfect place for burying CO2, geologically speaking. Iceland is pretty much all made up of basaltic lava which has these really nice chemical properties that it has these metals that bind with CO2 and form these stable carbonate minerals. Basically, this is what Kari and his team at a company called Carbfix do. They turn carbon dioxide into stone. And the big breakthrough that Carbfix came up with was figuring out a way to do what nature does in terms of capturing and storing carbon much, much faster. Yep, so nature has regulated the CO2 in the atmosphere for millions of years by storing carbon in rocks. And and, uh, most of the Earth's CO2 is actually stored in rocks. Um, But it does so pretty slowly. So what we figured out is a way to speed up the process and accelerate what nature does and do so not in the matter of millennia, but in the matter of months and years. The first step in that process is to combine the carbon with water to make essentially fizzy water. We make sparkling water out of it and we inject this carbonated water into the basaltic bedrock. So we're injecting water constantly into the ground and then we take the CO2 and we sparge the water, much like in a soda stream machine. And upon entry into the basaltic bedrock, um, the CO2 is fully dissolved in the water and it doesn't form bubbles, so it doesn't leak up. And there, it starts interacting with the bedrock and forming stable carbonate minerals via chemistry. And the idea is that it stays there pretty much forever, correct? Yeah, so once you've formed these stable carbonate minerals, which are essentially, you know, crystals filling up the pores of the rocks, I mean, and you've verified that this actually is happening, then you don't need any long-term monitoring. You basically can walk away worry-free. You know, there's not much that is more permanent than stone, right? Okay, so I was pretty impressed by this stage. Such a neat and simple way of getting rid of CO2 using nature's own processes. 
It's made even neater by the fact that CarbFix is using renewable geothermal energy to power this accelerated process of turning CO2 into stone. In other words, very little carbon is emitted in the process. And there are many places in the world which have the same geological makeup as Iceland, which means it's a technology that could be replicated the world over. Still, something was bothering me. This is a highly volcanic country. Are you absolutely sure that there couldn't be any kind of tremors or any sort of eruptions that would basically undo all of the work that it's taken to inject this CO2 down under the ground? Uh, I mean, uh, volcanic eruptions are basically a part of the long carbon cycle. So they are, you know, normal. It's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not very likely that it happens exactly where you have been injecting. So basically, we're counting on the Earth's tectonic plates to be on our side. And all CarbFix needs is water, the right kind of rock, and a steady supply of CO2. And Kari says that CO2 can come, in theory, from anywhere in the world. This is uh, sounds, when people hear it for the first time, it sounds pretty sci-fi, but, you know, it's it's what's happening uh, already in Northern Europe. And the European Union is, is very serious about building up these transport networks of CO2, both via pipeline and via ship. Kari paints a picture of a world where, instead of tankers and pipelines moving oil around the planet they'd be moving CO2 to places like Iceland where it can be buried. People, you know, hear about, okay, so we're moving CO2 from Europe to Iceland and think that's crazy. I mean, th there is crazy infrastructure that got us into the mess in the first place. So we need big solutions to get us out of this mess. But how many carbon emissions are involved in shipping over that CO2 to Iceland? Depends on the fuel you use for the ship. But in the worst case scenario, it's about uh, a couple of percent or a few percent of the total cargo carried. So, I mean, yes, there is emissions associated with moving the CO2, but the, the carbon budget, if you will, works out pretty well. And how many tons of CO2 are you sticking down underground at the moment? At the moment, it's probably around uh, 17,000 tons per year. So from when we started operating, we've injected something like 100,000 tons uh, of CO2. Now, in the grand scheme of things, that is a drop in the ocean. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Okay, so that really is a drop in the ocean, a tiny one. Don't forget that we're pumping billions of tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere, not tens of thousands. So can the technology involved in turning CO2 into stone underground really keep up? Just the sheer scale of what needs to be done is daunting. And there's also the question of where the CO2 comes from. 
Right now, carbon capture tech is mostly used to capture emissions from fossil fuel burning power stations or industrial plants. So that's stopping more CO2 from going into the air, but it doesn't tackle the billions of tonnes of carbon already floating around in the atmosphere. That problem, getting rid of CO2 already in the air, took me to another company, also in Iceland. It's called Climeworks, and it's doing something really unusual. At a facility it calls Orca, the company is sucking CO2 straight out of the ambient air. It's not often that you get to feel a part of something that might actually do some good in the world. Orca spokesperson Brindis Nielsen showed me around. We can go in there, sure. But the interesting bits are outside. This is uh, direct air capture, which means that the uh, the magic is happening outside yeah. from the ambient air. So this, yeah. this is the world's largest operational direct air capture unit. Yeah. It is, and it's the first direct air capture and storage facility in the world. It's yeah. operating. Yeah, it's in commercial operations right now. Like CarbFix, the Orca plant runs on electricity generated by a nearby geothermal plant. We're standing in front of this extremely exciting direct air capture unit. It's like a collection of structures the size of shipping containers stuck on concrete blocks. Each of them have what looks like a gigantic Venetian blind on the front. At the back, there are what looks like industrial fans. But tell us exactly what's going on here. How are these things managing to suck in and extract carbon dioxide from this extremely clean Icelandic air? Well, these are collector containers, as, as we call them, all uh, equipped with specialized filters inside of them. So you have the fans on the other side, which pull in the ambient air, and then you have a specific filter that filters out the CO2. Uh, once the filter is full, you of course need to release it. So that's the desorption phase. And then there's an automatic door that closes off that particular compartment and you heat it up to around 100 degrees Celsius, around the point of boiling water, which releases the CO2, which is then sucked into the processing hall and then sent via pipes to the injection wells. Those injection wells belong to CarbFix just across the road from the Orca plant. One bit of this operation is sucking CO2 out of the air and the other is burying it. Can you tell us how long does it take to extract, say, a teacup of carbon dioxide? Wow, that's a tricky question. Well, I can say that uh, each collector container uh, gathers 500 tons of CO2 per year. How to divide that into teacups, it's maybe a little bit beyond my mathematical abilities, unfortunately. So each container is removing more than a tonne of CO2 every day. But we're back to the same issue. It's a drop in the ocean. There are plans to scale up. Not far from the orca plant, diggers were busily laying the foundations for a much bigger sister plant called Mammoth, with nearly 10 times the capacity of orca. And carbon removal companies are springing up all over the world. But are we all supposed to have carbon capture plants in our backyards? Is it commercially viable? And who's going to fund this? Where's the money coming from to make it happen on a global scale? 
I came away with many, many questions. My name is Christoph Beutler and I'm Head of Climate Policy at Climeworks. Luckily, Christoph was available to answer my questions. He wasn't at Climeworks Orca plant in Iceland when I visited because he's based in Switzerland where Climeworks is headquartered. So we're putting uh, about 40 billion tonnes into the air. So in a way, isn't what you're trying to do a bit like trying to empty an Olympic-sized swimming pool with a teaspoon? Yes, it's exactly what it is. But, and, and that's a big but. So it's a new technology and there are several ways of removing CO2 from the atmosphere. So one is you use biomass. That means plants and trees that absorb CO2 naturally from the air. The problem is we would need about three planets of current tree coverage to to solve the problem with afforestation, same principle. In other words, we'd need many, many Amazon rainforests. Yes. So direct air capture, it's not the silver bullet, but we can already see, and that's that's in line with climate science, that we will need all of these solutions in addition to, to more emissions reductions. So what you're saying is that direct air capture is the best type of carbon removal technology that we have at the moment. But just going back to the swimming pool, um, if if that's the equivalent of the annual carbon dioxide emissions a year, the latest UN climate science reports are making it clear that we've basically got to empty nearly half that pool in the next eight years if we're to avoid dangerous levels of global warming. So Wouldn't it be better in a way if the millions of dollars going into direct air capture were instead directed to finding a way to cut those annual emissions? That's a a good question. And I think the answer to that is the millions of dollars should go into cutting the emissions, but we will have to find a few million or actually billion dollars more to go into removing emissions. We have to do both. So getting to zero is impossible without removal. So say it will cost us $200 per ton to do that. That's 2% of global GDP. And I think that is the price we will have to pay for um, you know, cleaning up. And it's also not a price that seems very high, to be honest. The problem is, because this is such new technology, it currently costs a lot more than $200 for Climeworks to remove a ton of carbon. And that means the company has to charge its clients much higher prices in some cases as much as $1,100 a tonne. That's expensive. For comparison, if you're a company trying to offset your carbon emissions, you can buy carbon credits for well under $10 a tonne. Still, Climeworks does have some really big clients. UBS, Microsoft, Swiss Re, even the rock band Coldplay. In fact, Coldplay signed up to offset carbon emissions from their latest tour. But most companies and rock bands can't afford Climeworks prices. So for now, the company's benefiting from growing government support. They are really, really throwing money at it. We are really also seeing in in climate policy and in government funding that governments are reacting and that they're putting serious money behind it. But here's my take. That's not a long-term sustainable business model. When do you think that Climeworks might become profitable? And I would say that the main aim of Climeworks is not to, to, to make a profit. Obviously, we have investors and we, we will need to make a profit and we will make a profit soon. But let me just paint the picture. Where we are with this is this is a seller's market and this will remain a seller's market for the foreseeable future because the precise nature of the problem is that we will need a lot more removal than we can put on the market and it's a very scarce good. It may be a seller's market, but... 
if the tech is too expensive, it will limit who makes use of it and whether it can scale up in time. Christoph doesn't deny that, but he likens the cost of Climeworks carbon removal today to the cost of renewable energy in the 1990s. Back then, the tech for solar and wind power was expensive, but then it fell precipitously, much faster than expected, and he thinks it will be the same for direct air capture. You know, we will get the price down. That's that's the, the law of technology. You know, as humans deploy technology, they get better at it, but the important thing is to keep at it. There's another big issue, though, with carbon removal tech. Some of its biggest cheerleaders are fossil fuel companies. In fact, oil and gas firms are investing in direct air capture projects. They see it as a way for the sector to cut carbon while continuing to extract more fossil fuels. And that might explain why so many environmental groups are worried that this technology will end up being another way the fossil fuel industry tries to prolong its life. So has Climeworks ever considered working with oil and gas firms? I put that question to Christoph. Yes, we have considered it, but we have never done it. We don't think that's a good marketing strategy. Kind of, and, and kind of seems to defeat the purpose if the purpose is carbon removal. Exactly. I mean, there is this narrative that we can pollute now and clean up later. The simple fact of the matter is we have to not decarbonize, but defossilize. I mean, we will always need carbon for our products, but it mustn't come from the ground anymore. So here's my take. Direct air capture and storage technology is really promising. I can see that if one day we ever get our emissions under control, it could play a useful role mopping up the carbon already in the air. But that's not our problem right now. Our problem today is we're still pumping billions of tonnes of new CO2 into the atmosphere every year, and it's hard to see this technology making more than a dent. I couldn't help but wonder if Christoph doesn't sometimes wake up in the morning daunted by the sheer scale of what they're trying to achieve. I mean, sure, it's a, it's a Herculean task, but let's say it's the, uh, I don't know, 1850s, and I'm proposing to you that I want to um, build a sewage system for the city of London. That must have felt on the same order of magnitude back then. What about Kari Helgeson at Carbfix back in Iceland? Does he ever think of it in the same way as Christoph, or does he ever, well, despair? It's like, you know, whatever you do, it's not enough, right? So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a burden. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, you, you have to approach it in a sort of a positive manner. And we've already been quite successful. We've stored more than 100,000 tons of gas. So the question is, you know, how much can we scale that up? That is the big question. But hey, I won't knock the effort or the impressive technology they're developing. It's better than the alternative, doing nothing at all. Still, I was left wondering if there aren't other solutions out there, ones that could be deployed more quickly. Because when it comes to climate change, we're really running out of time. Sometimes I think maybe we need something almost biblical, some kind of divine intervention, like the ability to turn water into fuel. Turns out that's not far off what some people are trying to do with hydrogen. When you burn that pure hydrogen, it goes back to what it came from, which is water. I think that's the best spell which has ever come out of Hogwarts. But it's in fact 
pure science. Coming up later in the series, is hydrogen the long-awaited miracle fuel? We speak to the man some are calling the king of green hydrogen. You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times with me, Polita Clark. If you like what you've heard, leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. There'll be four more episodes in this series of Tectonic and they'll be landing every Tuesday. I've also put links in the show notes to more climate tech reporting from my colleagues at the Financial Times. Credits go to our senior producer, Edwin Lane. Josh Gabet-Duayon is our producer and our executive producer is Manuela Saragosa. Sam Javinka was our sound designer and engineer for this episode, with original scoring by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley is our global head of audio.